Welcome back, you're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what it is they do and why they do it. I'm your host James O'Hanlon and this episode I'm joined by neuroscientist and behavioural researcher Adam Hamlin. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks James, glad to be here. No worries, I'm really glad I could talk to you today because it's perfect timing. The last podcast episode I spoke to a biochemist, Samuel Bannister, about drugs, specifically cannabinoids. Oh okay, cannabinoids, yeah, they're interesting uh, psychopharmacological agent. And I'm hoping yes. you can provide the, the other side of that equation, being a neuroscientist. Oh, okay. Talking about how the um, brain are going to react to these things. In a number of ways. Um, mm. Not as much as people might think listening to the media, though. Okay. <laughs> so we have a couple of receptors in the brain that uh, bind THC, mm-hmm. which is the active compound you'll find in marijuana, so the CB1 and CB2 uh, receptors, so they're found throughout the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, marijuana does bind to them, or the THC does uh, bind to these receptors, uh, obviously changing the neurochemistry of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's a lot of discussion around their benefits, okay, particularly in medicinal use of marijuana, mm-hmm. although the data at this stage is a little bit dubious. In what mm-hmm. way? Uh, particularly when we're thinking about their effects on pain. Okay. In particular, there's not a lot of research out there showing that they are analgesic mm-hmm. or have any analgesic properties. So, I, th- I thought these were going to be the holy grail of, of new types yeah. of painkillers. I think it's been a lot overrated mm. in the media. Yeah. Uh, I teach into the medical program and I often get asked about medicinal marijuana mm-hmm. from my students and I just say, Look, if you want to smoke marijuana, smoke marijuana. Don't try and hide behind <laughs> medicinal marijuana. Yeah. Yeah. What about other applications in terms of, I don't know, anti-anxiety medications or things like that? As, as far as, um, as, far as cannabinoids, cannabinoids are going, yeah. Uh, probably the opposite, if anything. Oh, really? Yeah. So um, there are some links between marijuana and some uh, psychoses in particular. Mm-hmm. So long-term users of marijuana can suffer from paranoia mm-hmm. and there is quite a strong link between uh, early cannabinoid use and the development of schizophrenia so that's quite well established. That's interesting because I think maybe I'm saying too much but I feel like we've all got that one friend from high school that, yes, <laughs> that yes. we see again these days and we go oh yeah maybe that's what's going on yeah. so there's actually data now to say that. Yes a there are. Thing. Yeah. Yes mm-hmm. uh, there is actual link between the overuse and early use in particular of marijuana during a critical developmental phase, Mm -hmm. which we call the great culling Mm -hmm. um, of the neurons during adolescence. Culling of your your brain cells? Yeah, millions (laughs) per day (laughs) are dying. So when you're about 13 years of age, you've got more neurons than you'll ever have. Mm -hmm. And then as you mature into the adult brain, if you don't use it, you lose it. So it's a massive culling. And it's a really important... Uh, developmental phase, particularly particularly with the wiring up of uh, the prefrontal cortex with some of our subconscious parts of the brain, such as the amygdala and stuff, which respond emotionally to stimuli. Mm. And the prefrontal cortex is all about... Uh, one of its key things is learning how to behave in particular social situations, so learning our social norms, etc. And it can repress a lot of those emotions. So even as adults, we still feel that emotional response, but we behave in a particular way mm. depending on our social situation. Yeah. Uh, so that's a critical phase that can be influenced by not just marijuana use, but drug use, alcohol use, etc. during adolescence. I mean, medicinal marijuana is one thing, but getting sort of cannabinoid constituents is another. So in terms of those you know, negative effects we see from recreational marijuana use... Do we actually know what chemicals are doing that damage, or are we just seeing correlations with use? Uh, no, we don't understand the bio- biochemical process of how okay. that's occurring yep. at this stage. We, they're, they're just um, clinical studies, mm. I guess, finding a link between marijuana use and uh, psychoses. One of the things that we spoke about in the last podcast was when people are developing... Uh, medicines from cannabinoids 
we always like to have a little giggle and a laugh about how they're linked to marijuana and weed, even though we could look at these chemicals in isolation from that. And I realized that we don't really do the same thing whenever we're talking about opioids and opioid medications. We yeah. never sort of give people a dig in the shoulder and say, hey, was, how was that Coke hit? <laughs> yes, no, exactly. And you've well, worked obviously on a lot opioids. Of our, yeah, a lot of our pharmacology obviously comes from plants, mm. of course, opioids, yeah. cocaine, etc. Uh, I've looked at a number of these compounds. Uh, opioids are fantastic drugs. What, what are they? Um, As opposed to... Your other painkillers, like your ibuprofens and yeah. your paracetamols. Okay, so they work centrally. So I can explain how analgesics work, so mm -hmm. opioid um, drugs. So um, within our brain, we've got a powerful analgesic system, which is based on our endogenous opioid compounds, our encephalins, endorphins, denorphins. When you say analgesic, pain-reducing pain compounds. Okay. Yep. So they, they kick in... When you're being mauled by a bear. Okay. okay. <laughs> so we all when you're being mauled that, by yeah. a bear, pain isn't really what you need for survival at that particular point. Mm -hmm. So we can block painful stimuli yeah. at the level of the spinal cord. So it doesn't actually reach the central nervous system. Okay. It, comes up, it doesn't reach the brain. Okay. <clears throat> so they work by these descending pathways down to the spinal cord and it literally blocks the signals, the action potentials, the electrical activity coming up into the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. So exogenous opioids like our morphines and codeines and stuff work in the same way. Okay. So they're really, really good analgesics in the short term. So they're very good short-term analgesics. Mm -hmm. Long-term use becomes problematic with our opioids because we develop a lot of tolerance and dependence on them. So we change... The brain changes in response to chronic use of opioids. So does that is mean where they become dangerous? Does that mean things like your ibuprofens work somehow differently? Yeah, very, very different. What do they do? Compounds. So our ibuprofens—they're anti-inflammatory drugs. Mm -hmm. So another way we can experience pain is through the inflammatory response. Mm -hmm. <coughs> this usually occurs when we have some sort of tissue damage. Now, when we get tissue damage, it releases compounds from the cell wall, in particular one called arachidonic acid. Then we have an enzyme called cyclooxygenase, mm -hmm. which turns this into prostaglandins. And prostaglandins can then signal our nociceptors, which is our pain-sensitive system, to trigger pain. So these drugs are COX inhibitors. Okay. So they prevent that conversion from the arachidonic acid to the prostaglandins and therefore prevent the establishment of that chemical that can then signal through the nociceptive system. So very different and Does that mean they're also kind of treating the thing that's causing the pain in the first place? No, the inflammatory response is part of... The inflammatory response is necessary yep. for uh, healing processes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's just yeah, blocking the painful stimuli so we can get on for things. Pain is a very important system, obviously. <laughs> uh, without it, we'd be in serious trouble. So mm. people who have... Uh, congenital insensitivity to pain don't last very long. Yeah. So we're trying to protect ourselves from tissue damage. When we have a chronic inflammatory uh, pain response, we change our behaviours as well. We get what's called nocifensive behaviours where we'll protect that particular yeah. part of the body that's painful. So all of these things aid in the healing process. All right, so we have these uh, chemicals that literally block... The nerve signals yep. to your brain, yep. like our opioids. Yep. Morphine's an opioid, right? That Morphine, might be the most. opioids. And, of course, we've got our local anesthetics, which are incredible as well. Mm -hmm. For blocking pain, anyone who's had a you know, tooth removed or a filling or something like that will um, know how good our local anesthetics mm. are. So does that mean these chemicals are similar so the chemicals our own bodies are producing whenever we go under that, that shock response, you said, where it yeah, stops well, us from particularly pain. the opioids. So that's our endogenous analgesic or anti-pain mm. system is our opioids. Okay. Uh, the other systems we manipulate pharmacologically. So uh, with our local anesthetics, which are often cocaine-based, so mm -hmm. there we go, um, they actually block uh, sodium channels. And we need sodium channels for the electrical activity. So we basically block all electrical activity. If we can't generate an action potential, then we can't experience anything. So that's sort of how they work. They just block yeah. the 
channel, uh, sodium ion channel. Yeah. All right, so it makes sense then that we have, I guess, opioid receptors yes. in our body. Yeah. Bringing it back to cannabinoids, why do we have cannabinoid receptors in our body? Or is that a lucky coincidence? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know why we've got the endogenous mm. CB1, CB2 receptors. They obviously do something. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot to ask Sam that. We're going to have to yeah. get it back on. <laughs> so why then, if feeling pain is good for us, why are opioids so addictive? Okay, they're addictive because they're used, when we use them exogenously, and because it is a system that's already ingrained within the nervous system mm-hmm. that's used, we have the receptors. In particular, there's one called the mu opioid receptor which is the one that's responsible for the analgesia but it's also responsible for the euphoric feelings of taking um, exogenous opioids such as heroin or morphine okay uh, etc and because the dosage dosages that we use are far above what we might get for a very short burst um, of analgesia when we need it um, the the receptors these mu opioid receptors respond to that high level of circulating opioids, and they internalise. Okay. okay. So we don't get as many of them. Is and this building a tolerance? Or this more is tolerance. Yeah. Okay, so the thing with um, addiction and dependence are two very different things. So I'm talking about the dependent okay. things before we talk about their addictive qualities. Yep. So we start to build up tolerance, which means... Um, when we're in a chronic pain situation or something like that and we're using opioids, we need to keep increasing the dosages to get the same mm-hmm. cellular effects. Okay. Now, when we're talking about um, opioids' addictive qualities, one of the pathways that opioids trigger is our dopaminergic pathway. People often refer to this as our reward pathway, mm-hmm. although that's a real misnomer and I really don't like the word the reward pathway. And it's, it's sort of historical. The reason why this pathway got called the reward pathway is because we see it upregulated in all drugs of abuse. Okay. We started to think all oh, drugs of abuse are rewarding, they're fun, mm. they don't make you feel good. It's not about reward. What this system is about is directing our goal-directed behaviours. Okay. okay. So that's what dopamine is doing. You set a goal... When you achieve that goal, you get the burst of dopamine. Mm-hmm. Reinforces that behaviour. Okay. So that's really what dopamine's role is. When we don't get the reward, well, don't get the outcome, then dopamine is reduced. Mm-hmm. And that also triggers learning. We need to change our behaviours to make sure that we get it. So it's about reinforcement of behaviour. Now, with all drugs of abuse, they hijack this system. So with opioids, it's a complicated system of um, disinhibition of the dopaminergic neurons buried deep within the in the midbrain and we get the release of dopamine so really what that's doing is it's tricking the brain to say okay taking this drug leads to the upregulation and the release of dopamine in response to that mm-hmm. so it becomes a goal-directed behavior so okay so now the drug seeking and getting the drug becomes your goal. Okay. And it hijacks it so strongly that it becomes your entire existence and that's what addiction is. Mm. Addiction is when you seek that drug constantly. It's got nothing to do... By this stage, there's no pleasure gained from taking the drug. There's probably a lot of dysphoria associated with it. Okay. Life's not going so well. Mm. Probably struggling to hold on to your job. You're probably committing crime to get money to buy the drug. So things aren't going well, but your behaviour is about just goal-directed behaviour, gaining drugs. So we take drugs, our brain starts firing off more dopamine than it would otherwise. Is this why you hear people... Addictive drugs do that. Is that why you hear people so describing their experience on drugs as, you know, colours being brighter and experiences no, being stronger? No, not necessarily. Okay. So the drugs that become addictive are the ones that hijack this goal-directed behaviour system. Mm-hmm. So not all drugs do that. Yeah. So take our psychedelics, for instance. They don't. 
Okay. Stimulate the dopaminergic system and they're completely not addictive. So I'm guessing then once we go off the drugs, our bodies aren't able to uh, regulate their dopamine in the uh, same way. That's why we get the dysphoria, mm-hmm. what we call the withdrawal syndrome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, with opioids in particular, it's a physical dependence, so you'll go through a really nasty physical withdrawal syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, other addictive compounds such as cocaine, etc., it's pretty much purely a psychological dysphoria. Okay. It's not so much of a physical withdrawal syndrome. Mm-hmm. So say you are on opioids for chronic pain medication. Yep. When you then come off those drugs, you, I'm guessing your, your body's perception of what is painful and what isn't is going to change. Yeah. So you get um, what's called hyperalgesia, mm-hmm. okay, which is an increased sensitivity to pain, yeah. which is one of the signs of the physical withdrawal Okay. Syndrome, so pain is even more painful. Okay, and I'm guessing that experience could lead a person to then go seeking yeah, opioids outside prescriptions. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is their dependent qualities. Mm. It's it's complicated. It's not that's a, a the physical dependence, and if you're taking it for chronic pain, not all of those people with the chronic pain will have that classic addictive. Um, behaviours of the drug seeking, etc. Mm. Although it can cross over. Yeah, because you do see similar patterns with addiction to chemical substances yes. as well as addictions to things like gambling. Yep, same system. Same chemical pathways in the brain then? Yes, yep. Okay. Exactly the same chemical pathways. It's so what's that happening? goal-directed behaviour system there. It's that little reward you get when you have a Slight win, mm. triggers the dopamine release, reinforces the behavior. All right. So in the same way you yeah. get those dopamine hits from mm-hmm. drugs, mm-hmm. you become tolerant to them. You start becoming tolerant to dopamine hits from small gambling wins. Yep. Yeah. And it reinforces behavior. Okay. Yeah. So if you're, say you need to go in for surgery but you have a history of addiction or addiction to opioids. I would be telling your anaesthetist straight away okay. <laughs> about <laughs> your levels of tolerance to such compounds, yes. Yeah. What's the alternatives then? More. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, look, um, opioids are usually post-surgical. Mm-hmm. So they're very different compounds that put you to sleep. Okay. Yeah. But they cause reversible states of unconsciousness. Okay, but yeah. it's you're still not a case pain. of having you're to have an alternative so you're not introducing opioids into your system again. It could be a trigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that would be called a, a drug-induced triggers. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of triggers you can get after you've gone through a withdrawal in a what we call a protracted withdrawal where you've been clean for a long time, mm-hmm. going along nicely. And then there's certain triggers that can trigger this system to fire up again and make you start seeking drugs. Okay. One of them is a small exposure to the drug itself. All right. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis in terms of people being overprescribed opioids and yep. that can lead to these dependencies or yeah. addictions. Yeah. Am I right in guessing that's a bigger issue in the States than it is here? Or have I got rose-colored glasses? Uh, probably. Look, this is a complicated issue. I think we're trying to do the right thing because people have become probably over-dependent on their usage, but uh, they are wonderful compounds for analgesia. Mm. And like you were saying before, maybe people that have been taking too many of them, maybe for chronic pain, Mm -hmm. etc., then may go out and seek other sources Mm -hmm. uh, to get their opioids, which is far more dangerous. And we're seeing a lot of uh, overdoses uh, because of that issue, so nothing's that easy. Mm. Personally, I, I disagree with the restrictions on opioid drugs, the codeine in particular. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a it's a good drug. You can still get it with a prescription, but I guess the doctors are getting busier and busier. What makes a good drug versus a bad drug? Is it simply dosage? Or oh, source? I don't know what it does. <laughs> <laughs> They're fantastic analgesics. Mm. 
Yeah. If they're respected as such, they're amazing. When you're investigating how drugs work on the brain, yep. how actually do you get inside the brain? Obviously, you can observe a person's behavior. Yep. Beyond that, how do you actually see the pathways and the chemistry and the sure. biology? So, okay, so uh, I'm involved in drug discovery work here mm-hmm. at UNE with our medicinal chemists who cook up compounds. Mm-hmm. And um, they explore it using modelling, looking at shapes and interactions between different proteins and receptors and see what it may or may not bind to. Mm-hmm. Um, then those drugs get handed on to me. Okay, where we can explore their effects in a living system. Mm-hmm. So I do lots of preclinical uh, assessment of drugs. So that, that means using rodent models uh, initially to see how the drugs work. Uh, so there's a number of things we do. Uh, so we do a lot of behavioural analysis, first of all. So I've got a full behavioural suite here where we can test all the different behaviours. Mm-hmm. So I can look at their cognitive effects. I can look at their... Um, I can look at pain, so some of the drugs we're investigating are analgesic compounds. I can look at anxiety and depression, which is another field of study that we're doing here, looking mm-hmm. for new anxiolytics, so anti-anxiety uh, medication, so I can test that. I can look at effects on motor systems and all sorts of things behaviourally. One of the problems with CNS pharmacology, so CNS I mean brain, is we have the blood-brain barrier. So the brain really likes to keep itself exclusive okay, mm-hmm. from the rest of the body. So it's actually quite hard to get compounds into the brain. All right. So they, most cases they need to be actively transported into the brain. So the first thing we need to uh, determine is does it get into the brain. Mm-hmm. So we can do that behaviourally. Um, this probably gets a little bit full on. Of course, we would then need to have a look what's going on inside the brain after we've given... Um, the compound, so I'll just skip to that bit. We now have a brain mm-hmm. okay, from this animal that's had uh, the drug. And we can look at um, the neurons within the brain that have been activated by that drug. Okay, so we can look for upregulation of things called immediate early genes, which is an indicator that this particular neuron responded to that drug. Through... Other systems, we can look at what type of neuron that was, where in the brain that was, you know, the certain pathways that they would activate, the certain neurochemicals, therefore, that that would release. So we can explore it that way. So in a whole brain system. We also use what's called electrophysiology. So here we're looking at the activity of drug compounds on single receptors within the brain, so we can map what it does. So how drugs work, in most cases in the CNS, is they'll bind to receptors and channels, moving compounds in and out of across the membrane. Okay, so that's how all the, the brain works, is moving things across mm-hmm. a membrane. So we can look at how that changes the movement of things across the membrane. They can either stop things happening, an antagonist drug, or an agonist drug. They can open things and make things work more efficiently in response. So we use both of those techniques. All right, so I want to unpack a couple of things yeah, in that. So sure. you get your chemists, they'll yes. look at what a compound is actually made of. Yep, look at its structure. molecular level, yep. then they can say, all right, theoretically it yes. should interact with these other chemicals in the body to do these things. Yes. And then you come in and say, all right. Does it. Yeah. Does it. And yep. you can actually, I guess, make a series of predictions. If yes. it does work, yep. exactly. you should see these behaviors change. Yep. And is that always in rat models? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, that's always in rat models. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in most cases, it is in rat. How similar so rats are have changed more lives than triple zero. <laughs> so, yeah. I always find it so strange when I hear about rat model okay. research and how easy we it is to are, order stock standard rats. Okay, so if we, like look, if we look at the brain, okay, yeah. the brain of a rat and the brain of a human, mm-hmm. okay, exactly the same. <laughs> that was going to be my okay. next question. <laughs> <laughs> there is no difference. The difference is, okay, we've got a big wrinkly thing on top. Mm-hmm. They've got a smaller wrinkly thing on top. That big wrinkly thing we've got on top is really just a storyteller. Okay, it's justifying our existence, <laughs> justifying our behaviours, adding extreme meaning to associative memories. Mm-hmm. We danced, it rained. We 
or our favourite undies, our football team one. That's really what the cortex is doing, mm-hmm. the, the bigger bits of cortex. A lot of the cortex, the wrinkly bit on top, is sensory system, so it helps us see, hear, etc. I mean, take auditory information, what humans have done with that, what we're doing now, language, etc. Mm. So we've just taken things to the extreme. Where all these drugs are working is we don't have access to that. That's all about subcortical regions. The okay. basal bits in the basal the middle, brains yeah. and the midbrains and the reticular activating systems. These is where all the drugs are working. Exactly the same in the rat as the human. All no right, difference. so we got our, our wrinkly outer bit, which is where outer bit, which I is store all my weird facts about video yeah. games and pop culture yeah, and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Now, the rat's not so concerned with that, but it's also um, concerned with things like breathing and avoiding danger and yeah. Homeostasis and all those yeah, things. That and they're I'm also incredibly in. smart. Mm. Huge cognitive abilities. You know, they're incredible animals. So, very, very intelligent. So, how conserved then is this across other animals? Could we just usually be using fish or birds sure. or yep. flies? Yep. Yep. We use all of those species, mm-hmm. depending on the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were doing it. You go even right back go to sea elegans, simple worms. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they've got the same neurons, the same chemistry, and that's how we can even explore drugs, etc. in a in a sea elegance. Uh, but if you want to then move it into the mammal, which is important at some stage, mm-hmm. so depending on the level of the question that you're going to ask, yeah. then you select the right species. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, okay, yeah, so obviously you're not going to be asking a sea elegance uh, about, I don't know, mathematical processing or yeah. something. But yeah, depending on the question, but questions. Yeah. Yeah. We can yeah, use depending them. on the level of question, yeah. So why I don't know if you know an answer to this. Why rats? Was there some point in history it's where historical. someone had to decide? Yeah, so it's it's really a historical model. They were easy to breed, they've got a short breeding period. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you can make lots of rats in a very short time. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is beneficial for research. Alright. Yep. And of course, the mouse will throw in with the rat, and both models are used extensively. Mm-hmm. And we've manipulated so many of their genes. We've made so many monsters. <laughs> and that's you know, the bit that us to I find so interesting because you can just yeah. order a batch of rats that have a particular yes, mutation. Yes, and mutations. And, yep. They'll get human Alzheimer's disease. They'll get all sorts of things. Yep. And if you're looking at... And it does allow us to study these diseases in, in really good detail. So can you order rats? Can you order depressed rats? How does that work? <laughs> you can't order a depressed rat, but there are models to make a rat depressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one I use in uh, my lab is called the limited nesting model, mm-hmm. uh, where during developmental uh, phases, they get a limited nest. Okay, So what rats really like to do is make a nest. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they end up with a depression and anxiety phenotype. This allows us then to test different anxiety and depression medications, not just medications, but maybe a behavioural approach mm. as well to try and reverse some of these changes. How do you tell if a rat's depressed? Okay, so there's certain models that we can use. You've got your limited nesting, but then yeah, so that, you see once that makes them depressed, but then when we take that? them into the, uh, into the laboratory, there's certain tests mm-hmm. uh, that we use. Um, we, we can look at learned helplessness, so at which point a rat will give up swimming and trying to get out of a um, out of water. Okay, so you can see how long it tries for. That's the standard model for the testing of all antidepressant medications. So okay, depressed the forced rats give up test. and let yes. themselves dry. Exactly, so our helplessness. Jeez, um, <laughs> it's dark. We do social interaction, so we test their sociability. Uh, as well, so we give them access to a novel rat that, that they've never met and look at how they interact with each other. We could then introduce a second novel rat and see if it's more interested in the new one than the old one. Mm-hmm. So there's measures for social interaction. Um, there's the light dark box, so rats have this conflict within them about staying safe, but also exploring. Okay, So it's a, it's a conflict within them that we use. So if we place a rat in a dark area, okay, we can look at how long it takes them to start exploring the light, mm-hmm. how long they'll spend exploring the light, classic anxiety model. 
All right, so you get your, right, you subject it to some sort of treatment, yep. give it a drug of some sort. Sure. You observe its behavior, yep. see if it actually predicts. I mean, this sort of approach, I uh, I think I've said it on the podcast before, if I describe it as an underpants gnome problem, does that compute? <laughs> no. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a Scythe Park reference uh, with the underpants gnomes come. They st- Step one is still yeah. underpants. Step B is a big question mark. Step C is profit. Yeah, okay. So in that way, we're looking at the Step, beginning, the yeah. administration of the drug, the outcomes of behavior. Yeah. The, big, the question mark in the middle is what's actually happening in the brain. Yeah. And the chemistry and all yeah. those interactions. So yeah, that's what we're exploring when we look at the brain afterwards. So. How do you do that? Do yeah, you so have to then kill them afterwards? Yes. Can you do it during? That's what, what I was do? sort of skirting around. Yeah, yes. Then we get the brain. Mm-hmm. and we cut up the brain and have a look at what's happening inside the brain as a response to that drug. Mm-hmm. So what are you actually yeah. looking for then? Does the brain physically change? Yes, so we can look for activity mm-hmm. uh, within the brain. So we can visualise that using a process called immunohistochemistry, okay, where we can visualise proteins. And we know particular proteins are upregulated when a neuron is doing something. And we can regulated, they make more of. They make something. more of it. Yep. yep. So when a neuron's going about its business or responding to a drug, it'll upregulate this protein, make more of this protein, and I can see that mm-hmm. down the microscope, and I can map which parts of the brain have been activated by the drug. Mm-hmm. After we've mapped those areas, then we can go in and finer detail, which is where we take what's known as a brain slice. Okay. Okay. So we take a live slice of brain. Okay. Yeah. And this is where we can look at the real pharmacology. What is this drug doing at a cellular level? How is it changing the activity of the cell? How does one take a live slice of a brain? I won't go into the details. <laughs> <laughs> it is what Quickly. it sounds like. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. And we can keep it alive for a day. Yeah. In a dish and study it. Yeah. Okay. So this is a very... It's not actually staying inside the brain. You're, no. you're Okay. You're taking it out yes. before the cells die. You're seeing what yes. they're doing. Okay. Yes. Got it. Yep. All right. You mentioned looking at things like antidepressants as well. Yeah. How do they work? No idea. Okay. <laughs> there okay. are obviously several different classes of antidepressants. Mm. Uh, a lot of them have to do with what's known as the monoamine system. So these are a group of... Uh, neurotransmitters, so in particular serotonin, noradrenaline. So chemical implication of dopamine in there as well, because mm-hmm. they all sort of work together. Um, and there's there's huge problems with the pharmacology. Okay, these were all found serendipitously. Mm. These compounds. In fact, the whole antidepressant medication came from a, a story of. Um, a tuberculosis drug that okay. was given to some tuberculosis patients and they found that they um, were dancing in the hallway and ate their breakfast. Okay. And they went, wow, that's interesting. Maybe we've stumbled across an antidepressant medication and these were known as our monoamine oxidase inhibitors which increase the amount of Availab- availability of these neurochemicals. Okay. And that really triggered the whole hypothesis that depression was due to not enough serotonin, not enough noradrenaline in the brain. Okay. Huge problems with that whole theory, though. So then we made better drugs that selectively worked on serotonin or noradrenaline or both of them, um, etc. But the problem with our antidepressant medications is that these drugs immediately changed the availability of these compounds within the brain. Mm. But they don't have any clinical effects for two to three weeks. Okay. Four weeks. So there's a huge problem with the whole monoamine theory. Mm. So there's lots and lots of research going on about how these drugs actually work in depression. There's anti-inflammatory, there's the neurogenesis theories... One that I'm looking at in my lab is their effects on the gut microbiome. Okay. So microbes in the gut using these compounds as food and changing their diversity 
And we now know there's a huge link between the microbiome and the brain chemicals that they make. So they're all theories. We don't understand how these drugs work. So why why do we still use them? <laughs> is, is, again, because is they have a, a clinical effect. Okay. A lot of our CNS drugs, we don't understand how they work. We just know they have some clinical benefit in some people. And not too many crazy, d- dangerous side effects. Yes. Okay. All CNS medication is fraught with a whole range of nasty side effects. So what are these doing to microbiomes then? Are they damaging them? Well, it may be beneficial. They change oh. their diversity. So I'm not saying they're bad. They just I'm saying them. they change the diversity. Maybe that change in diversity is what's maybe helping its therapeutic benefit. We don't know. Early days of this research. Okay. So you probably then can't answer my next question if we know that's a direct causation thing. If the drugs are directly interacting with the microbiome or if there's some other middle stage in there. Yeah, it could be multiple reasons. Mm. And this is a research that we're doing right now, so I can't tell you the exact answer of how (laughs) these drugs are changing the diversity of the gut microbiome. It was quite a cute little experiment. We had rats eating Prozac. So we, um, <laughs> we put the Prozac in cookie dough, and they love cookie dough. <laughs> and so you looked at their microbiome? Uh, it's currently been analysed. Okay. So All right. I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> but exciting. We've shown it in vitro. We've shown it in a dish. Mm-hmm. We've got a whole range of dishes with gut microbiomes in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so a whole diversity of gut microbiomes, and they've been exposed to Prozac mm-hmm. and some of them love it and thrive, and some of them die in response to mm. it. So, yeah, depending on who you are, which gut microbiome, which gut microbe you are, mm. you may love it or hate it. Yeah, but it changes it. Whether mm. it's good or bad, we don't know yet. Talking about painkillers before and how mm. they have different ways of, I guess, numbing a pain response yeah. or sensation. Are antidepressants? numbing some other sensation or they are enhancing positive sensations do we even know that level of detail uh yes so some of the older drugs uh, that we used to use as antidepressants called our tricyclics and our tetracyclics it was probably big probably in the 70s mm-hmm. these drugs were the antidepressant of choice but very very broad uh activity which means a lot more side effects. Uh, these drugs are now being used for chronic and neuropathic pain. Neuropathic pain is pain which is damaged to the nervous system itself. So there's all okay. there's a whole range of different types of pain as well. So mm. neuropathic being an incredibly difficult one to treat. So having some benefit there. Mm. But yeah, if you if you're asking me how drugs work on the brain, we we really really don't have a lot of idea. <laughs> it's not what you want to hear from no. a neuroscientist. No, <laughs> but I mean, like you said before. We haven't fixed a lot of diseases either yet. Yeah. <laughs> like you said, pain pain's a good thing. It's a thing yeah. our body na- does naturally to help us preserve yes. ourselves. I imagine also that things like fear and anxiety are also yes. good. Absolutely they are. So uh, surely, uh, are we saying there's sort of unintended consequences of antidepressants? In terms of maybe they're numbing things or changing things that they shouldn't be. Very good question, and certainly potentially. Mm. Okay, so certainly fear is, again, another very good emotion that's beneficial for our survival. Mm. Again, if we go through all the mammals, I'll just stick with the mammals, they all show exactly the same responses to fear. Mm. Okay, and it's very beneficial. And what fear does is it triggers learning. Mm. Hardcore associative learning. Okay. Okay. So I was in this situation. This happened to me. I need to understand everything that was going on in my environment. What's the situation? Try and avoid that in future. Mm. Really, really beneficial. Um, Fear and anxiety, very, very, I guess, wrapped up. Anxiety is, uh, I guess, the pathological condition of fear. So fear is normal. Mm-hmm. Anxiety is pathological fear. So anxiety is pathological. When it when it's isn't there like good anxiety whenever you, yeah, you have lots of stuff mm. to get we done call that it day? Fear if it's good anxiety. Okay. 
Oh, that, you're talking about stress. Okay. Stress <laughs> causing anxiety. Yeah, a little yeah. bit of stress are good as, as well. Stress, a uh, good motivator. Mm-hmm. Uh, triggers learning as well in the right doses. Yeah, but anxiety is a clinical. Anxiety is, is a bad. clinical condition, yeah. yeah, where that's out of control. Okay. So generalized anxiety disorder where you're constantly worrying about things. Mm-hmm. Of course, then we have our phobias, panic attacks. They're all uh, fear out of hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're pathological. And that's the point where you would need some sort of intervention to be it drugs yeah. or therapy or yeah. something. Yeah, and with our anxiolytic drugs, none of them are very um, very good either. Again, high levels of dependence, particularly around any anxiety compounds, our benzodiazepines, mm-hmm. Valiums, etc., cause a huge physical dependence as well. Okay. So, again, fantastic drugs for short-term use. Mm-hmm. I guess they're a bit like power tools. They can be wonderful when you use them properly. Yeah. When you don't use them properly, they're no, really, right. yeah. <laughs> really dangerous. Yeah, we, no, we, <laughs> we tend to be very careful with our CNS medications. Mm. They are wonderful. Yeah. And a lot of people depend on them, particularly antidepressants, mm. etc. So I, I know there's a lot of negativity around them, but they are amazing compounds with clinical benefit. Mm-hmm. who are helping millions of people. And I'm really interested to see where this microbiome stuff yeah. goes too because, again, it's one of the, it's an underpants known problem where we know that there's some sort of link between yes. microbiome and mm-hmm. depression and anxiety itself. Yeah. And if, as a third you know, party in that relationship, drugs are coming in and also affecting microbiomes... Mm-hmm. Is it actually helping or is it causing an ongoing spiral of one affecting the other? Could be either. And I've posed my hypothesis is that it is beneficial. And we'll see. Could that be a potential mechanism then for how antidepressants work? Potentially, yes. Oh, that's cool. That's what we're saying. That's the hypothesis that (laughs) we decided to test, that it's having a a beneficial effect on their therapeutic action. All right. One of the mechanisms whereby changing those microbes, the next step is to see which ones like it, Mm. culture up those ones that like it and see what role they have. Because, of course, a lot of them are making the precursors to our neurotransmitters, serotonin, Mm. etc. So that may be one of the mechanisms. We do know that the proposed mechanisms of their immediate increase in serotonin in the brain doesn't have any benefit at all on depression. Okay. So... What is it? Yeah. Just to be clear, we don't know that yet. It, that's the idea. Yeah. It's a potential it's idea, idea. We do not okay. know that yet. <laughs> no. All right. Well, maybe we'll have to come back and do this again soon and can update sure, us. By once. next year, I'll, I'll know the answer about whether it changed it and what they were. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll be looking at, it'll take a few years to find out what role they have hmm. in the gut microbiome. So once, like you said, you're doing preclinical stuff. You're yes. doing this all this with rats yes. and animal models. Mm-hmm. Once you've done that, is it then fair game to throw it at humans? <laughs> what point That's does it take that step next step to get yeah. there? So, what we do in basic research mm. is, as a community of basic researchers, we publish and we go to conferences, mm. and it's that whole body of work then, which will then feed into, okay, we think we're onto something, mm-hmm. okay. Let's test it in a human. And by that stage, I'm out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I get frustrated. You can't do everything. I, I purely focus on, you know, how these drugs work. Mm. Yeah. And, and I imagine that's pretty frustrating. I get frustrated seeing media releases oh, and news yes. articles come up yes, saying, yes. scientists have discovered a cure oh, for yes. this yeah, yeah, yeah. in one obscure rat yeah. study. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I roll my eyes off it. So I mean, you, like you said, you do lots of... Teaching here, is that something you have to drill into people that... Yeah, no, something I do yeah. drill in, yeah. We, we even have essays on it. Go and find some crazy media article. Find the original paper. Yeah. And see, how much <laughs> see how much liberty they've taken. <laughs> <laughs> yep, so don't get too excited about the no, next no, cure no, for no, cancer no, no, or no. depression or whatever. No, no it's... Uh, the brain's incredibly complex. And mm. um, like I hinted earlier, we haven't fixed anything yet. We've got a couple of crappy drugs that work in a couple of people for a very short amount of time. <laughs> so we've got a lot of work to do. Mm. Yeah. But, but it's, it's exciting. Yeah. And, you know, as a 
as a community of neuroscientists, we keep studying, we keep studying, and we'll, we'll eventually get somewhere, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, yeah. people use the brain as an example of you know, the pinnacle of a complex system. Mm. And I'm sure it's been said by someone that I can't remember the quote of that perhaps our brains, no matter how smart they are, they might not even be able to understand themselves. Yeah. Like I was saying before, the wrinkly bit on top is fraud. <laughs> you know, and it's coming up with the hypotheses. Mm. It's full of bias. Mm. And that's one thing I've learned about being a, a neuroscientist for I don't know how, how long now, is that things that sound good just aren't true. <laughs> when you actually study them, like um, oh, so many examples, <laughs> that the the subconscious brain is a is an interesting creature. Mm. Yeah, so I guess that's all our confirmation bias keep, is all yeah, wrapped up in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've learnt over the years just to keep a completely open mind, ask the hypothesis. I mean, it sounds sounds plausible, sounds good, and it sounds like that's what the brain does. And but when you get the actual data, it's often very different. I want to yeah. then ask you about your Twitter handle, which I just yes. discovered is at Honest Scientist. Yes. I'm guessing that's getting at that sort of yes, idea. Yes, exactly. That's getting at that idea. Uh, I've been a little bit slack lately, but <laughs> um, for a long time I was a member of the Australian Skeptics uh, Society where, you know, we really like evidence. Mm-hmm. Um you know, bringing down silly ideas, the wall of woo at chemists, you know, your vitamins, uh, et cetera, mm. and your ear candles, et cetera. And, of course, uh, back then it was the anti-vaxxers mm. uh, that we were getting into um, back then. So that's when I started my Twitter account as Honest Scientist where, <laughs> you know, I'd try and spread the truth around evidence. And But, but these are big industries, yeah. billion-dollar industries, so... You know, and if we're talking about people like anti-vaxxers or whatever, mm. evidence isn't particularly convincing for them. No, <laughs> it's not convincing at all. These ideologies, yeah. ideologies are very dangerous. Uh, and again, it's one of the flaws of the the human brain. The wrinkly bit. The top. wrinkly bit is flawed. Mm. Um, the anecdote, which is the the weakest form of evidence. Mm. The brain loves the anecdote. <laughs> you know, my my uncle was taking this yeah. this vitamin, and he said it was wonderful and did all these things. We'll believe that over a scientific paper saying it's not doing anything. Yeah, you know, it's one of the flaws of the human mind. So, so it's, it's quite hard to be, you know, rational and you know evidence based. That the brain doesn't work like that. And it's a shame that people who are rational and evidence based are kind of labelled as being a little bit, I don't know, unromantic or yes, yeah, yeah. cold or something. Yeah, it is a curse. <laughs> well, it's totally not true. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> should, should be clear. <laughs> uh, yeah, we get frowned upon, I guess. Yeah. As so a, what, what would we know? As know. a sceptic or a person so in a sceptic so society, this, you know. mm. what then is your approach to getting information out there knowing that even the best evidence mightn't be as convincing as it should be. Yeah, I guess it's about getting out there and communicating, but it's it's a tough road. And mm. often you're teaching to, or preaching to the converted. Mm. Yeah, you know, often when I was involved in the Skeptic Society and we'd have meetings and things at pubs and all that, and it'd just be the people who... Other skeptics. Other skeptics <laughs> and stuff. So it's really difficult to, to get out there mm. and... Um, I guess try try and help people. It can be dangerous having these false beliefs mm-hmm. as well, particularly around the medical profession. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, all of your your herbs and your supplements and things like that. Um, uh, we always used to say, so, you know, what do you call alternative medicine that works? <laughs> Is it just medicine? In medicine, okay. yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> because it's the process and the rigour that it has to be put under to be yeah. classed as a yeah. medicine. You know, they're not perfect. And I guess that's the crack that they try to open. Mm. You know, big pharma, they're after us and, you know, they're only interested in making money and, and things like that. But there is a lot of rigour behind, you know, getting a medication on the market. Like I was saying, I do preclinical, and then it has to go phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials, double blinded. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of rigor and controls before 
the medicine can be put on the shelf to say it treats this. Mm. So alternative medicines can be harmful in that respect. And I guess it's also the thing that even when you know evidence itself might not be the most convincing approach, it's almost like a disservice to not constantly be communicating these things yeah. it's the, whenever you can. It's not perfect, but it's the best we've got. Hmm. You know, the scientific method of being passionate about the development of your hypothesis, your question, and then be passionate about how you're going to go about asking that question through a rigorous experimental design hmm. and then being dispassionate about what it tells you. That's the key. <laughs> the data yeah. is the data. You know, and that's what I try and drum into all of my students. Come up with a good hypothesis, a good idea, you know, a mm. reasonable, testable question. Be rigorous about designing your experiment to answer that particular question, then step back. Yeah. You know, but like I'm saying, particularly with the brain, it'll surprise you. <laughs> Every time you go, that was a good question, that was a good experiment. That's not what was supposed to happen. Look, key example that we're just going through now is uh, with these chronic early life stress rats that we're developing. It sounds like they should. Um, so you go from, say, humans. Okay, so humans have had an early traumatic event, potentially go on to develop mental disorders and may have addictive qualities or and things like that. It sort of mm. makes sense. But what we're actually finding with these rats when we put them into a gambling protocol, so called delayed discounting, is where you can push a lever and get an immediate reward. Mm-hmm. Okay, Or you can push this other lever and there'll be a, a long delay, but you get a bigger reward. Mm-hmm. So it's about impulsivity. All right. And our chronic rats are actually better at the delayed reward. Okay, That's not what we expected at all. We expected an impulsive phenotype mm. to develop, but it was the exact opposite. So you've always got to keep an open mind and let the data drive you. I'd love to get someone on the podcast now to talk about this side of psychology with smartphones and entertainment and all that kind of stuff and yeah. how they're developing that to be addictive under our noses and things. Uh, mm. <laughs> well, another time, perhaps. Yeah. But right there, just picking up on what you said, I think you know, there that's the the argument against people who would say skepticism is sort of cold and dispassionate in the way you described it. No. You use the word passion about 40 times. Yes. And yeah. that it's pure curiosity. Pure curiosity and... and, and giving believing. yourself up to reality, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Well, the best we can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keep an open mind, just not so open it falls out. <laughs> that's a good point to end on, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, people want, do want to follow you on Twitter and hear your musings. It's at Honest Scientist. And they can Google you online. Just look for Adam Hamlin Research you any something. Yep. That'll find me. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Hello, Adam. James, Thank you guys for listening. You can check us out online at inscituscience.com or on social media at inscituscience. If you want to support the podcast, you can check out our new Patreon page. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you all next time.